Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jerry Franklin. <laughs> For those of you listening on the podcast, I have just produced a vibrator. That and more. But before that, I just want to say something to all the book lovers out there. If you are a book lover like me, today's show is supported by Book of the Month. Book of the Month is a rapidly growing service with a simple goal to make sure you love what you read. You browse the five best books of the month and choose the one you want. You discover titles that you would not have found on your own. I've been doing book of the month and that's what I love about it. It, Before a book becomes, oh my God, everyone knows about this and everyone's reading it. You get an in there, you know, they'll suggest to you, you know, it looks like this is going to be amazing. So with exclusive pricing starting at just $10 and free shipping, you can get your favorites shipped to your doorstep for less. Book of the month, it's bound to delight, and you get your first book for $10 at bookofthemonth.com slash risk. That's bookofthemonth.com dot com slash risk. I also want to remind everyone that in August, our school, The Story Studio, you can find us at thestorystudio.org, we're putting on a special show. It'll be like a risk show. There'll be five storytellers sharing very personal, very emotional, very revealing stories. But the focus of the evening will be on diversity. The night will be called In It Together, stories of strength in diversity. So right now, we're looking for stories. We're asking people to pitch us. If you are an immigrant or a child of immigrants, someone with disabilities, we're looking for members of religious minorities, people of color, LGBT people, women. Send your stories in, stories about how you came to value your unique identity. And then through that, you found it in yourself to effect change in your own life, in the lives of others, in the larger world, send your pitches to Cindy 
at thestorystudio.org. That's C-Y-N-D-I at thestorystudio.org. And maybe you can be a part of this very, very special evening of storytelling that's on August 18th in New York City. It'll be at the Connolly Theater, and it's a part of the Speak Up, Rise Up Storytelling Festival that's going on in August in New York. Very, very special night. We can't wait. And we hope that you will pitch us your stories or have people from your life pitch it. Maybe your mother or, you know, your your nephew. What <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Send people our way to pitch us for In It Together, stories of strength in diversity. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people... (coughs) Oh, I've got a frog in my throat. (coughs) (coughs) Now it's back out. Um, The show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Beastie Boys behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode. Yes, you can. Three stories from live shows. A couple of them were at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We do that once a month in Brooklyn. And one was at our Burlington, Vermont show in the dead of winter. Crazy up there. Uh, Well, I think it was January. I don't know. We get around. This show gets around, my friends. We were just at the Mass Mocha show in North Adams. That was a blast. Now I'm back in New York City for a little bit here before we go off on a couple more tour dates in the next couple weekends. Uh, Hey, listen, another thing that we've added is this Facebook discussion group. On Facebook, if you go to Risk Show, you'll see there's a discussion group where people are not just fans of the show, but also storytellers who have been on the show are discussing, you know, how they felt about sharing their stories. Fans are saying, you know, oh, it had this effect on me, or I was wondering this about that story. It's kind of fun. I join in to as many of those conversations as I can. JC, our producer, does too. Check it out. That's uh, on our Facebook group at Risk Show. In a little bit, we're going to hear from one of our favorites, Mr. Mark Redmond. But before that... Someone who's doing the show for the very first time, and what a treat it was to have her on. This is Samantha Ruddy. Brooklyn Magazine recently called her one of the 50 funniest people in Brooklyn, and there's a fuck ton of funny people in Brooklyn. (laughs) A lot of those people have been on this show before. You can find her at samantharuddy.com. Here she is now with a story we call Out and Under the Influence.
Hey, how are you guys doing? Good. I normally do stand-up, so I'm just, you know, knee-jerk reflex to ask a group of people how they're doing. (laughs) So my name is Samantha, and I went to Catholic school from the time I was four years old until I graduated at 18. And some people would say that I didn't come out of the closet until I was 18, but I didn't even realize I was gay. That's kind of late to not even realize. (laughs) That's kind of like when Scooby and Shaggy would realize the monster's been right behind them the entire time. (laughs) It's just like, but if lesbians like girls and I like a girl, then that means zoinks. Right around graduation, I started talking to this young woman online. She lived across the country, and we would stay up late talking about music and sitcoms we were into, and she would give me sage 24-year-old advice to my 18-year-old problems, and I would give her what I can only presume was god-awful 18-year-old advice to her 24-year-old problems. Eventually, the IMing turned into texting, and the texting turned into phone calls, which is a very big deal for millennials. <laughs> it's actually what we do instead of marriage now. <laughs> Just give somebody a call. <laughs> so we got very close, and one night we were having a particularly deep conversation. And almost offhandedly, she said to me, hey, you know you're gay, right? I didn't. (laughs) But it made so much sense. Like all the intense female friendships and the crushes I had developed and not understood what the feelings were. And also me breaking up with this really cute quarterback who everyone was in love with and I just couldn't find myself interested in. I had no idea what was wrong with me and then this was a perfect solution. Oh, I was gay. It was perfect. So I decided that I was going to just come out to everyone and everything immediately. And I mean everyone and everything. I was like literally coming out to my shower faucet. (laughs) So the first person I came out to was my dad. My dad took it really well, it was great. Uh, We were playing a game of backgammon in my backyard and I said, Dad, I think I'm gay. And he said, yeah, I know. (laughs) I've known since you broke up with that hot guy. (laughs) And that was that. My mom wasn't as easy. My mom was a little bit skeptical. She was incredibly loving and supportive but I could tell that she didn't really believe me. You know, she's an Italian Catholic mother and she's very controlling. You know, she likes to be the one who's in charge of her kids' lives and this was a ship that she really couldn't steer, which I think is why she had a hard time coming to terms with it. I decided that I didn't want to press the issue. Because you know when somebody is like, I'm straight, I'm straight, I swear I'm straight, you're like, "Mm, that guy's gay. I was afraid of doing the opposite. I was afraid if I was like, I'm gay, mom, hey, I'm gay, I swear I'm gay, she would be like, "Mm, that sounds like something a straight person would say. (laughs) So I kind of just let it rest. And about a week later, I was scheduled to get my wisdom teeth out. And my mom, being the overprotective Italian mother that she is, insisted on coming into the operation room. 
So we're in the operation room, and the dentist comes over, and he shakes my mom's hand. He says hi to me, and uh, he puts the mask over my face for the anesthetic. And he says to me, okay, so this is going to feel like you've had a couple Miller Lights, because he was like a cool dentist. (laughs) And I turned to my mom, and I said, what's a Miller Light? I've never heard of it. And it crushed. (laughs) I don't think I deserved it. (laughs) But I was like an 18-year-old kid and I was about to go under for a minor surgery, so they kind of just threw me a bone. (laughs) So I start counting down mentally. Five, four, three, two. And right around one, I start feeling like I've had more than a few Miller Lights. And the next thing I knew, I was coming too. I was incredibly disoriented when I came out of my anesthetic coma, I guess is the correct term. I didn't even know where I was at first. I thought that I was at home. So my mom helped me into the waiting room. She kind of picked me up by the arms and was like, okay, let's go to the waiting room. I'm going to fill out some paperwork because you're not capable of doing that right now. And she was right. And so I sat down and I noticed a girl across the room. And there was something about her that I couldn't put my finger on, but I knew I had seen her before. And I'm just sort of staring this girl down. And finally it hit me. Oh, this was a girl, Devin, who I'd gone to high school with. So I yelled across the room, Devin! But actually uh, my mouth was filled with gauze, so (laughs) it kind of came out more like, Devin! (laughs) Hey, Devin! Now, just a little background. Devin is a perfectly nice girl, but I said maybe two words to her throughout the entire course of high school. There was no reason for me to be trying to get her attention in public, let alone causing a scene to do so. I just started screaming, Devin! Hey, Devin! Homeroom! Devin! And she locks eyes with me, finally, and she says... My name is Rachel. (laughs) Wasn't even the right girl. So my mom sees that I'm causing a scene. And she comes over and she goes, hey, is everything okay? And I say, yeah, I'm gay. That's Devin. (laughs) In my defense, one of those things was true. So my mom was like, yeah, sweetheart, I know, you're gay, that's Debum, we gotta go. And I'm like, no, you don't believe me. And my mom was like, no, sweetheart, I I believe you. Come on, come on, let's go. And I was like, no, you don't believe me. And right then and there, I decided that I needed to prove to my mom that I was gay. (laughs) Oh, calm down, it doesn't involve Debum. So I just started listing female singer-songwriters. <laughs> that I was attracted to. I'm just screaming the Lilith Fair lineup. And I think my mom knew what I was doing, but everyone else in the waiting room was just like, why is that doped-up child screaming about Amy Mann? <laughs> So finally, my mom was like, no, we gotta go. (laughs) 
So she helps me into the car, and as soon as we get into the car, I burst into tears. And I said, you don't believe me. And my mom was like, no, trust me, after that, I totally believe you. (laughs) My mom sort of loosened up the reins a little bit after that. You know, she let me do things that I wasn't allowed to do. Uh, She let me drive my car with my friend two hours to go see one of the female singer-songwriters I had been yelling about. Uh, It was great. I had so much fun. Uh, We smoked cigarettes, and we drank slushies out of colorful straws, and I immediately got dry socket. Uh, (laughs) It was great. No, it was the best day of my life. And some of you might be wondering um, what happened to the young woman from across the country that I had been talking to. And the answer to that is that we don't actually talk online much these days because now we live in the same state. And we've been dating since I was 19. Yeah, sometimes stories have happy endings. Well, let's see how things go down the line. Uh, (laughs) And that's the story of the time that my wisdom teeth came out, and so did I to everyone in a dental surgeon's office. Thanks. I feel funny. Stay in your seat. Deep, deep, uh-huh. Deep, 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 deep. Stay in your seat. Deep, deep, uh-huh. Deep, 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 deep. Is this real life? No. Uh huh. Why is this happening? It's just from the medicine. I have two fingers. Uh huh. Good. Is this going to be forever? No. Stay in your seat. Deep, deep. Uh huh. Deep, 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 deep. Stay in your seat. Deep, deep. Uh huh. Deep, 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 deep. Stay in your seat. Deep, deep. Uh huh. Deep, 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 deep. Stay in your seat. Deep, deep. Uh huh. Deep, 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 deep. So this story takes place in the 1990s. I became director of what's called the Residential Treatment Center. It was in Dobbs Ferry, New York, a little town on the Hudson River, a little bit north of New York City. And it was called St. Chris, and we had 72 teenagers who lived there. These were all boys and girls from the high poverty, high crime areas of New York City. A lot of these kids had arrest records. A lot had been in juvenile detention. A lot of them were former gang members. They also didn't have families to live with. A lot of their parents were deceased or missing or their parents were in prison or their parents were so addicted to drugs or alcohol they couldn't take care of them. A lot of these kids had suffered abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, hunger, homelessness. You really could never emphasize enough the suffering that these kids had experienced in 14 or 15 years of living. And I was bound and determined to provide them a place to live that was safe and nurturing, where they would be cared for and treated with dignity and respect and compassion, and really loved, maybe loved for the first time in their life. And when I got there, one of the first things I saw is there was no activities. The kids are bored to tears. They're always getting in fights with each other. There was nothing to do. So we had some rusted out basketball hoops in a parking lot. They were always out playing basketball. Let's start a basketball team. So we started a boys' basketball team the first year, then we added a girls' team, and we would play against area high schools. We call ourselves the Cougars, the St. Chris Cougars, because it sounded good, and I was a Cougar when I was in high school. I was a St. John's Cougar, so we're going to be the Cougars. 
So we started playing all area high schools. We had a coach. We had an athletic director. And every game, they would just get slaughtered. They would lose by like 30 or 40 points. These boys just met each other and started playing together. They were playing against kids that have been playing since like middle school. So every game was a wipeout. So near the end of the season, we had a team meeting. And the coach held it with them, and I just went to sit on on it. And for about an hour, they just went on and on. Oh, man, this is terrible. It's embarrassing. We're getting killed. They're arguing with the coach. They're arguing with each other. And I'm just sitting there, and I didn't expect this, but one of the boys turned to me and said, how about you, Mr. Redman? Aren't you embarrassed when you're sitting in the stands watching us get killed like this? What do you think? And I said, you know what? I'm not even looking at the score. I don't care if you win by 30 or lose by 30. The only thing I'm looking at is that you guys have given your all. Every single game, every single boy from the opening tip to the final whistle has tried his best. I think it's been a great season. I'm proud of every one of you kids. And I didn't expect this, but every boy got up out of his chair and came over and shook my hand. So now it was finally the last game of the season. It was an away game at Yonkers, about 20 minutes away. I couldn't go. My son was with me. He was about six. His name was Aiden. He was six at the time. So I thought, I'll go up to the gym just to say goodbye to the boys, wish him well. So I go up there, and they're not organized at all. And one of the boys says, Mr. Revan, our coach hasn't shown up. We have no one to drive us to the game. I said, how are you going to get there? He said, well, can you take us? Well, I got my son with me, and plus, even if I take you, who's going to coach you? And he said, well, can you do that too? I don't know anything about coaching basketball. But I felt sorry for them. It's the last game. I was like, all right, get in the van. My son gets in there. We all pile in the van. We're driving up the driveway, and who do I see? Our athletic director, a young woman, Terry Johnson. She waves me over. I pull the van over. I put the window down. She goes, what are you doing? I said, your coach didn't show up. I said, I'm taking them. She said, who's going to coach the game? I said, I am. She said, you ever coached basketball before? I said, no. She said, move over. I was like, great, she's getting in. <laughs> Terry jumps in the van. All right, we drive to Yonkers. It's a rough part of Yonkers. High crime era of Yonkers. That doesn't faze me. I've worked my whole life in neighborhoods like that. So we go in the gym. There's a prior game that's wrapping up. And we're getting ready. And the opposing coach comes up to me. Really nice guy. He says, hi, we got a ref, we're going to play four quarters, great. And there was about 100 fans from their team there in the stands. So the game begins just like every other, like every other game. We immediately start getting killed, you know. We're down by 10, we're down by 15, we're down by 20. Terry turns to me at one point and says, when we get back, I got to talk to the coach. I don't think he's taught these kids anything. They don't know anything about basketball. So anyway... It's halftime, and Terry takes him aside and actually, like, gives him instructions. You know, you do this, you play here, you go to there. She really gives him a basketball talk. So the second half begins. And for the first time all season, they start playing well. In fact, we start catching up. We're playing better than the other team. So now instead of down by 20, we're down by 14. Then we're down by 12. We're actually in this game. Our guys are going crazy on the sidelines. They're high-fiving each other. And then all of a sudden, I hear this bang. And I look out on the court, and somebody, I think from the stands, has thrown a metal chair right out onto the court. 
and the game stops. And for the first time, I looked into those stands and I got this uneasy feeling. And I thought, this doesn't feel safe. I didn't see one what I would call responsible adult in that whole... I didn't see anybody who looked like they were age 21. And they don't look happy. So anyway, the ref takes the chair off the court. The game begins again. And again, our guys are playing great. It was like 30 seconds to go. One of our players, I still remember his name, Kareem, he takes the ball all the way down to court. He does one of these Michael Jordan-esque flying through the air. Bam! Stops it. We're within like two points. The quarter ends. The ref takes the ball, holds it in the air, and goes, game over. Yonkers wins. So I ran out in the court. And I said, game over? What do you mean game over? We got a whole quarter to go. And he looks at me and goes, Mr., if you know what's good for you, this game is over. <laughs> so with that, there's kind of this confusion on the court. I'm grabbing my son. And then the opposing coach, the guy who'd been so nice to me in the beginning, he comes up and he looks really scared. And he's like, where's your van? Where's your van? I said, we park right down the street. He goes, please, please get your players now and get out of here, please. So I'm like grabbing guys. I can't find Terry. And then finally I get as many as I can. And we go out in front of the gym. We're outside now. And I'm, I'm counting heads, looking for everybody. And all of a sudden I look up. And I can see that these angry fans are forming this circle around us. And then one of them takes a beer bottle. And he throws it right at my feet. Smash! When I heard that, I went, run! <laughs> and we just ran as fast as we could down that block. I had no idea if we'd been chased or not. And for a second, I lost my son's hand, and I yelled, where's Aiden? Where's my son? My son! Uh, one of our players, he was carrying him like a bag of groceries. He's like, I got him, Mr. Redman! I got him! So we get up to the van, and this is before the days where you could just go beep, beep, and open the doors. You had to actually put the key in. So I get up to the van, and I'm fumbling with the keys. And the boys are like, open the van, Mr. Redman, open the van! And I hear one of them say, I don't even have my gun with me. <laughs> so I finally opened the van. We just did like an avalanche of people in the van. And then again, I'm counting heads. I still don't see Terry. I'm like, where's Mrs. Johnson? One of the boys goes, there they are. And she's standing with two of our kids right where we had been. So another boy goes, drive on the sidewalk, Mr. Redman. Drive on the sidewalk. And I did. <laughs> I drove right on that sidewalk. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I pull up right in front of Terry. She jumps in, the other players. And then I just put the pedal to the metal. Go with the hell out of Yonkers. <laughs> so we drive back to Dobbs Ferry. I saw an Italian restaurant. It was like a step from a pizzeria. And I said, come on, boys. You know, I'm going to treat you to a dinner. So we go inside. And they're all sitting there. And they're like, we would have won. We were robbed. You know, we would have won that game. And other boys are like, yeah, we're celebrating. We're going to celebrate. And I'm thinking, yeah, we're celebrating, all right. We're celebrating that we're alive. So anyway, that was the end of the season. The next year, we did it all again. 
Like, same thing, except every game was close. They would lose by five or 10 points. Second to last game of the season, they, I still remember it. They beat Pleasantville High School, New York. They legitimately beat them, and man, they celebrated that night. That's my story. Thanks for coming out tonight. This is Broncho behind me now, <laughs> and we just heard from Mark Redmond. I don't know why I find Broncho such a funny name, but there it is, Broncho. Mark Redmond, you can look him up. He's got a fantastic book. You can find it on Amazon. It's called The Goodness Within, Reaching Out to Troubled Teens with Love and Compassion. You can also find his podcast, on iTunes and wherever podcasts are. It's So Shines a Good Deed is the name of Mark's podcast. Great to have him on again. Before that, we heard a little interstitial. It was a, uh, a remix of David After Dentist, that viral video of the little kid after the dentist all hopped up on laughing gas and whatnot. <laughs> I love when he asks, is this going to be forever? <laughs> I know that feeling. Hey, I want to talk to everyone about HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step -step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks who are short on time. The freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities you need so there's no waste. They employ two full-time registered dietitians on staff. They make sure everything is nutritionally balanced. I've tried it. I <laughs> Cooking is not my forte, my friends. <laughs> and I have made some remarkably wonderful meals. Uh, right now, they're, they're focused on summer meals, right? And lots of wonderful options, even breakfast options. I focused on their veggie options. It's less than $10 a meal. So for $30 off your first week of deliveries, just visit HelloFresh.com and enter the code RISK30 when you subscribe. That's HelloFresh.com. Enter the code RISK30 for $30 off your first week of deliveries. Our final story today comes to us from Jerry Franklin. On Twitter, you can find him at JD Franklin. And on Facebook, you can find him at Jerry Franklin on stage. Here he is now with a story he shared at the Risk Live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. It's Jerry Franklin with a story we call The Opposite of Death. 
I first meet my future wife, Kate, at a dog park in the Hollywood Hills. I don't have a dog. I have a screenplay, two screenplays, and they're kind of dogs. I'm a freelance reader for some of the local production companies. The park is really big, several acres, and I'm on a bench way in the back, and I look up from dog number one, and I see this magnificent woman in jeans and a white blouse ambling slowly in my direction. She's an Amazon with big, flowing, dark red hair. Think Xena, warrior princess crossed with red Sonia, only taller. We talk for quite a while, and at some point, her dog wanders off. Want me to get your dog back for you, I ask? Sure. So I trot off after it, and almost immediately, I'm cornered by a couple of snarling German shepherds. Oh yeah, that's right, German shepherds always chasing after the Jew. <laughs> Kate laughs. What a lilting, lyrical laugh she has. It turns out that just one week earlier, she'd asked the universe specifically for a Jew. Two hours later, we exchange phone numbers. Two years later, we exchange vows. An Amazon warrior princess and Woody Allen. <laughs> It turns out, though, that height is the least of our differences. Kate is the most visual person. Her big brown eyes attuned to every nuance, every detail. I live in visual oblivion. So Kate furnishes the house, decorates the house, arranges all the objects in the house to her particular liking. It's Kate's house. I just live in it. And Kate radiates heart energy. I tell jokes. Kate is assertive. She's a direct, in-your-face communicator. She is a force of nature. I tend to fade into the woodwork. It gets to the point where I'm thinking about the only thing that she and I have in common is that we're both descended from apes. <laughs> but we've fallen in love with each other's core. And we're married for about 17 years. Then. One morning around New Year's, Jewish New Year's, I wake up early. Well, it's early for me, and it might have something to do with Kate's stern promise of the night before. You're not getting out of bed in the morning till I have you. You're mine. Okay. I look over and I see Kate make a long snore, sort of an extended exhalation with a vocalization behind it. Lasts about four or five seconds. She is so relaxed. I don't want to disturb her, so I ease out of bed. I let our three dogs out, brush my teeth, let them back in, feed them, come back into bed, and I snuggle up next to her. Something that was just, just a little bit off. So I decide to wake her. She won't wake up. And I'm poking and I'm tugging, and I'm yanking, and I'm pleading, and I'm yelling, and I'm screaming, Kate, wake up, wake up, Kate, Kate, wake up, wake up! That long snore that I heard, 
That was Kate's final breath. She's been dead for 15 minutes. How, how do you describe the indescribable? I shiver for days even though it's 70 degrees out. I weep spontaneously, I lose language. My short-term memory vanishes. As soon as anything leaves my hand, I could be looking at, for it for hours. The shock dulls all of my senses, not just my sight. I actually have some time on my hands. So I, I read a few books on grieving, The Courage to Grieve, Year of Magical Thinking. They help a little, make me feel a little less alone. But as the shock wears off, my senses turn on. And now I'm noticing everything. Kate is everywhere in our house and nowhere at the same time. Her purse, still in the hallway, open, beckoning, waiting for the day to begin. Her toothbrush, still on the kitchen counter where she left it, smiling at me. I can't move anything. I can't touch a thing. It's all radioactive. If I try and put anything away, it would just place that much more distance between Kate and me. I can't bear it. I can't. It has to stay Kate's house. Even if I'm going to be the only one living in it. After a few weeks, I decide, you know, go back to work, maybe spend some time among the living. But after the obligatory round of, oh, nice to see you, so sorry, let me do anything I can do, just let me know, anything I can do. Everybody treats me like I have cooties. And I'm just as alone at work as I am at home. The drive home, what's the point? Why even bother? I have no home. I have no home. I'm sitting in traffic thinking maybe I should just steer into an embankment. And that's when I notice something. I am as hard as a rock. And I stay that way the whole drive home. And very soon, this is not an anomaly. This is the norm. And I'm not even just getting hard in traffic. I'm getting hard at the laundromat, at airports, at the grocery store, at home, at work. I am horny. I'm as horny as a high school senior. Talk about schizophrenic. It's not enough to be traumatized. Now there has to be confusion added to the mix and shame. But the months go by and it doesn't let up. And now I'm starting to get so lonely. I just so miss just being touched by someone other than myself. I could pay for it. But somehow, that just doesn't seem like a cool way to use Kate's life insurance. <laughs> but what do I do with all this energy? You know, those grief books helped a little. So I go to my local adult toy store and I assemble a library. I heart female orgasm. The Science of Orgasm, Orgasmic Erotica for Women, Five Minute Erotica, Erotic Massage, the one by Charlotte Hathaway, Erotic Massage, the one by Ann Hooper, Tantra for Erotic Empowerment, 
Dr. Tatiana's sixth advice to all creation. If you ever want to know how sea anemones do it, that's the book to buy. <laughs> Sex at dawn, read my lips, the lover within, great in bed, crazy little thing, the chemistry between us, clitoral massage. Oh, no, no, that one was a video. Because it feels good, she comes first, and my favorite, women's anatomy of arousal. I get where I could talk all day about vaginal tenting, the perineal sponge, where women's breasts are typically the most sensitive, ways to tease the clitoral hood, shaft, vestibular bulbs, breathwork, touch. <laughs> I'm starting to meet women, but I'm still living in Kate's house. I have to make changes. So I enroll a couple of Kate's oldest and dearest friends to help me begin giving away her most important possessions. We start outside her car, move inside her childhood piano, advance to the bedroom, her clothes, her armoire. Then I look over at the bed table. It's the last frontier of radioactivity. It hasn't changed since, since. But I have to make changes. I have to make the house my own. So I just impulsively sidle up to it, you know, nonchalantly, you know, doing one of these. And I get next to it and I just casually flip open the drawer. And there it is. For those of you listening on the podcast, I have just produced a vibrator. A very big, very purple, dual motor, multi-pronged vibrator. What do I do with this? I'm not throwing it out. Kate and I bought this together. We used it together. It still has some of her essence, some of our essence. I can't exactly put it on the mantle next to her ashes. <laughs> then I have an idea. Dear Prudence of Slate Magazine, in the summer of 2011, my wife and I purchased a top-of-the-line Jopin vibrator. We'd just begun to incorporate it into our sex lives when my wife died suddenly of a massive heart attack. The vibrator had nothing to do with that. Fast forward about a year. I've begun to date again, and I've met a few women who seem to have an open heart and an open mind. Is it creepy to offer a dead woman's vibrator to someone else? If it is, what else can I do with it? Sell it on Craigslist? It's an expensive piece of equipment, barely used, and it really should be used and loved once again. But somehow, a vibrator just has a different vibe about it. <laughs> I'd just be more comfortable if it went to someone I knew rather than to a complete stranger. What do you think? Sell it, toss it, or share it? Signed, oscillating. <laughs> the very next morning. Dear oscillating, talk about a buzzkill. <laughs> I can't even imagine the thought of partying with a vibrator loved by your late wife. Even if you've cleaned it off with the antibacterial toy cleaning spray, this suggestion is going to cause unnecessary friction. 
If before her death, your wife had purchased a top-of-the-line Philips Sonicare HX6932-10 electric toothbrush, offering it to your girlfriend would make her gag. The Vanity by Jopin is also top-of-the-line, comes in magenta, and its motor is apparently so powerful that when the user comes, she's magenta too. (laughs) But imagine trying to explain that your wife had only a short period of time to enjoy her vibrator before her heart gave out. There's the rub. You don't want to have that conversation. As for selling it on Craigslist, I would not want to meet the type of person who'd ring my doorbell to get a used vibrator. (laughs) I understand you consider your Joe Pen investment grade, but sometimes investments just can't be recouped. Prudence. In one week, Prudence gets 5,000 responses to my email. It goes on to become number one in her 10 best letters of the year retrospective. (laughs) And the overwhelming kind, considerate, compassionate consensus on the part of her readership is that I am one sick, cheap bastard. It's been several years since I wrote that letter. And since I returned to Los Angeles and buried some of Kate's ashes at the dog park on the exact physical spot where we met 20 years to the day after we met. But it's really only been more recently that I finally started to realize what what it was all about, what this was all about. Sex is the opposite of death. Sex is joy. Sex is being in the moment of aliveness. Sex is creating life. And when I was surrounded by death, inundated, swamped by death, my body just rose up and looked death straight in the eye and said, fuck you. And by embracing sex so defiantly, so tenaciously, so brilliantly, my body was able over time to drag my crippled brain and my wounded heart along with it. Sex is life. Sex is life. Sex is life. Thank you.
is all for this week's episode, folks. This is ASTR behind me now covering Drake. We just heard from Jerry Franklin at the Bell House. And I want to take a moment to remind you that if you are a book lover, Book of the Month is fantastic. In fact, when I was recording the mid-host segment of this episode, the doorbell rang and it was a new book from Book of the Month. I got to say, I love a real book. You know, holding a real hardcover book in your hand is a treat. They have a simple goal. Make sure you love what you read. You can browse the five best books of the month and discover titles you wouldn't have found on your own. They have exclusive pricing starting at just $10 and free shipping to get your favorite ship to your doorstep for less. Book of the Month is bound to delight, and you can get your first book for $10 at bookofthemonth.com slash risk. That's bookofthemonth.com slash risk. Now, here is where we are coming next on July 8th. We are at the Black Cat in Washington, D.C. D.C., come on out on July 8th to the Black Cat. On July 15th, we're in Philly at the World Cafe Live. July 15th, come on out, Philadelphia, at the World Cafe Live. July 15th, we are also back at our monthly show at the Bootleg Theater. In Los Angeles, Los Angeles, come on out on July 15th to the Bootleg Theater. On July 26th, we are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. That's our monthly show there. July 26th, come on out to the Bell House in Brooklyn. Now, on August 18th, we're having that special show called In It Together stories of strength in diversity that's august 18th that's through the storystudio.org and we are taking pitches for that if you pitch cindy c-y-n-d-i at the storystudio.org you might be able to be a part of that in it together stories of strength in diversity show that is at the Connolly theater on august 18th in new york city On September 9th, we are in Salt Lake City at the Urban Lounge. The theme is Unexpected, and we're still taking pitches for that one also. September 9th, Salt Lake City. The theme is Unexpected, and you can always pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Finally, you can also help keep Risk running and get all sorts of bonus content if you become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk. Like I said, new stories that you can't get on the free feed are always popping up there. Behind the scenes videos and mp3s a lot of stuff is going on at our patreon page patreon.com slash risk and you can become a member for a dollar a month five dollars a month ten dollars a month whatever you can give you can help keep risk running there folks today's the day (laughs) take a risk Different of
What do you think I see? Some other cat looking over. Don't alert me. Wait. <laughs>